Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. This is David Walker, and on today's special podcast, we continue reviewing the Dimitrov years with the Atlanta Falcons. To help me with this task, I've invited a special guest to join me on each of these episodes as we break down the trades, free agent signings, and draft picks made in the Dimitrov era. My guest today is Aaron Freeman. You may know as Falk fans on Twitter, and he is the host of the Locked On Falcons podcast. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Always glad to be talking about Thomas Dimitrov. I've spent so much of my <laughs> illustrious career talking about the good and bad moves of Thomas Dimitrov, and I think this series is going to be a great one, and hopefully I can live up to the expectations. Oh, I, I have no doubt you will, given the uh, the fact that you have absolutely picked apart <laughs> Dimitrov over the years. And I think it's fair to say, Aaron, I want to get your opinion up front for this. In the Falcons franchise history, probably no GM had as much of an impact as Dimitrov did in his time. Well, yeah, certainly positive. Yeah, you could certainly go back if you really want to go deep into Falcons history and be like, <laughs> they had some GMs that had a significant negative impact uh, on their team's success. But yeah, I think uh, Dimitrov, his success, sort of the the new era that he sort of ushered in has laid the foundation of the stability, relative stability, we should say, mm-hmm. that we've seen with right. this organization over the last dozen years. I think certainly, you know, in general, I think the good outweighs the bad with Dimitrov, but we, we certainly can nitpick and I'm one of the best nitpickers out there. <laughs> and that's why you're here, sir. And we are going to talk specifically about the 2010 season, the third year under Dimitrov, and of course, uh, his third with head coach Mike Smith at the time. So I want to set up what the 2010 season looked like coming in. Obviously, the Falcons in 2009 had uh, the 9-7 and record. It was a little bit of a disappointment. The injury to Matt Ryan certainly set them back a little bit. But this was a team that many people thought after Ryan's rookie year would be a contender. And coming into 2010, a lot of analysts believed that they would continue to be a contender in the NFC. Um, It was the first time the franchise had experienced two consecutive seasons with a winning record. Uh, So obviously, a lot of people felt like the tide had turned in Atlanta as a franchise. Um, And the one big thing that appeared to be holding back the Falcons going into 2010 was that they were 28th in pass defense uh, in the 2009 season. And that's certainly going to impact what we talk about in 2010. And it almost definitively was one of the things that Thomas Dimitrov was focused on fixing as they went into 2010. Um, So before we go into those specifics, I do also want to point out that when we we get to the point we're talking about the draft, we're going to be skipping the second round. And that is because... In 2009, as we had mentioned on the previous podcast, Tony Gonzalez uh, was traded from the Kansas City Chiefs to the Atlanta Falcons for that 2010 second round pick. 
so obviously they did not have a second round pick in this year's draft, and we will talk about that as well. Um, but I did want to bring that up because we are going to be skipping that round when we get into the draft talk. Um, 2010, obviously the season as a whole, Falcons finished 13-3. and three. Uh, Matt Ryan had six fourth quarter comebacks during the season, which is a little bit nuts. Um, of course, this was the infamous year where uh, the Falcons got bounced uh, from the playoffs early by Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers, um, who left the uh, flaming pile of, of Chris mm-hmm. Owens on the uh, the floor of the Georgia Dome at the time. So I want to talk about some of the moves that maybe led up to that point, that led up to what this 2010 season uh, ultimately looked like. We're going to start with the free agents. Um We'll start with who the Falcons allowed to leave, some of the guys they, they got rid of. And it really wasn't – I think it was really in the 2011 and forward where you started to see some major names move on. Um, I think you know the Falcons traded cornerback uh, Chris Houston um, as part of this offseason, and they let Ty Hill, another cornerback, walk. And, of course, these guys were part of the 2009 season – that had uh, you know the Falcons ranking towards the very bottom of the league in pass defense. Um, so Aaron, Chris Houston, Ty Hill, did either of those guys move the needle for you uh, as players, or did you feel like yeah, getting rid of them was not uh, consequential at all? Yeah, no, I think you're. I think you're right. Um, you know, going back to the point you made, I, I think you looked at this offseason and you could see holes on all three levels of the defense. And that was the priority for, for Dimitrov to address. And I think the secondary was the biggest one. And, you know, Ty Hill was their attempt to sort of Dominique Foxworth 2.0 uh, with a trade in, <laughs> in, in the training camp that worked out with, with Foxworth in 08 did not work out with Ty Hill in 09. So letting him walk, I, I don't think was an issue. Chris Houston was a, somewhat decent starter at times over his short tenure in Atlanta, but was very up and down. And I think it was very clear that when you looked at sort of Brent Grimes' play in the back half of the season, you even saw, you know, before he got decimated by Aaron Rodgers, Chris Owens <laughs> looked promising at the end of that 09 season. And so mm-hmm. you were like, okay, we need to upgrade this Chris Houston spot. Um, and, you know, trading him, you kind of look back and you're like, maybe we could have gotten more. I think they wound up getting like a six round pick or something like that for mm-hmm. him. Um, and you're like, we, we should be able to get more than that for a starting caliber corner from the Lions. But other than that, I, I felt like it was a move that the Falcons needed to make and, and try to look for an upgrade. Yeah. It, and I think if you're looking back, it's not like you're going to cling to a bunch of players in the secondary where you were near the bottom of the league in pass coverage. So I think the move made plenty of sense. And, you know, it, it's hard to say, oh, well, you know, this guy's really going to turn around this year, especially as you know, that when you've got some younger guys, Brent Grimes was still on the team. Uh, Owens, they did feel like had some potential. And likewise, the safety position, they had obviously Thomas Decoud, uh, and then William Moore would be going into his second year uh, in the league in 2010. So, uh, they obviously felt like they had some core young pieces and getting rid of some of these guys didn't feel like a big move. Um, as for guys that they re-signed or they kept, wide receiver Brian Finneran, uh, you know, reliable sort of wide receiver four or five type guy. A um, couple of cornerbacks, Brian Williams uh, and Brent Grimes, we mentioned, and they franchise tagged. Uh, I could I had completely forgotten about this, Aaron. They franchise tagged uh, Michael Keenan uh, <laughs> in this season, which was... Uh, I guess. I mean, a, you know, kicker, punter. Uh, sure, that makes sense to me. Uh, what about these players, the guys that they decided to keep? Uh, were any of these guys 
in your mind just nonsensical or you feel like these were smart moves at the time? Yeah, they felt they felt pretty smart at the time. You know, this was I think you you sort of hinted at this earlier. This was still like the end of the quote unquote building up phase that Dimitrov and Mike Smith were doing in the, so, over those first three years. So it, it felt like, you know, a Finneran primarily at that point in his career was basically like a decent slot receiver that could beat zone coverage. But, you know, at his age uh, was not able to sort of separate. He had, you know, three consecutive knee injuries, you know, leading mm-hmm. into, you know, like 05, 06, 07, somewhere around then. Um, so, you know, his primary role was kind of this sort of jack of all trades. Like they would move him all around the formation. He'd play fullback. He'd played H-back, tight end, wide receiver. He'd be on special teams. So he was a versatile piece uh, for the team in terms of his ability to sort of add some veteran ability as a blocker and pass catcher. Uh, So it made sense to bring him back as a role player. Brian Williams flashed some things early in the season. And I think his injury at the beginning of 09 was one of the reasons why their secondary struggled so much. And so bringing him back uh, as a sort of, um, you know, insurance policy in case the Falcons couldn't upgrade the cornerback spot in a major way in, in, Later that offseason, I'm sure we're going to get to their attempt to do so. Uh, you know, that made sense. Uh, Grimes, you know, Keenan at that point in time. Yeah, like the fact that they franchise tagged a punter tells you that this team was, you know, still building up their roster and felt confident enough with, uh, you know, bringing back, I don't know, what what's the franchise tag back then? Like $5 million, a $5 million, paying a punter $5 million or whatever it was uh, back yeah. in the day. Yeah, I think it was yeah in that three to five range. Uh, certainly not breaking the bank, especially for a team that's not paying a quarterback yet, right? Yeah. Um, so, and I, I do want to point out with Brian Finneran that Harry Douglas uh, in 2009 had suffered his ACL tear. And uh, so it made sense to bring back some familiar depth for Matt Ryan uh, because, you know, there was, I guess, some uncertainty about how long Douglas would need to get back up to speed. Uh, and, you know, obviously... He had that uh, decent rookie year, uh, getting sidelined in year two. It, it's it made sense to bring Finneran back. He was someone that Ryan did like to throw to occasionally. So, uh, but again, not really needle movers for me. Uh, Brent Grimes, I think, made a ton of sense for me. The frustration with Grimes was that, like they never seemed to really totally commit to him as a, as a player, uh, even though he showed incredible uh, you know ability and potential, and ultimately probably outplayed a lot of the guys that they kept drafting and hoping would replace him over the years. Uh, and that even went on after he left the Falcons as he you know went on to Tampa Bay. Uh, the guy continued to be a good player. Um, but those were the, the players that the Falcons uh, decided to, to keep. Let's go to the one big name. And I know you're looking forward to this, Aaron. <laughs> I am too. Uh, the one big name that the Falcons went out to and, and, and picked up in free agency. Um, Cornerback Dante Robinson, uh, who came out of uh, Texas, he was the number 10 pick uh, in the 2004 draft. Uh, I think a lot of people may not remember, he had six interceptions as a rookie. Uh, He actually had a pretty decent career in Houston. Uh, A lot of people thought he was lined up for a relatively big payday. Uh, Maybe not this big, though, and I think maybe this is where some of the concerns start to creep in a little bit with the GM. The Falcons gave Dante Robinson a six-year deal worth $57 million total, 22 and a half guaranteed. That may not sound like much in 2020 dollars, but 10 years ago, that was a pretty large contract for a cornerback. 
Um, and certainly we have the benefit of hindsight in being able to evaluate his play in Atlanta. But I think it's fair to say, Aaron, that at the time when he was drafted, there were concerns about whether he would be used properly, whether he was going to be a good fit in this defense, and almost certainly about the size of the contract that he got. So let's put on our, our time machine just a little bit and pretend like we're back in 2010. What were some of the criticisms at the time of this particular free agent signing that you can remember and that you think were valid uh, when looking at this deal in the context of that season? Yeah, and I think I think you you put a good context on it in terms of valuing that contract because I think I, I looked at this not too long ago that if you adjust it for what the salary cap was, that contract that they gave Dante Robinson back then would be like fifteen and a half, sixteen million dollars in today's money, uh, adjusted for the salary cap, which I think is still like the biggest contract that the Falcons have ever given out to a, another team's free agent, as far as I know. You know, I, I don't have cap and contract information from like prior to like 04 or anything like that. But as far as I know, in the last 20, 30 years, it's probably the biggest contract that the Falcons have arguably ever given out. So um, it was a big deal at the time. And, you know, Robinson was picked in that 04 draft class, same with D'Angelo Hall. And so it was basically Dimitrov and Mike Smith telling you who they thought was the better corner uh, in, in that draft class. And you can make a strong, compelling case that over his time in Houston, Robinson proved that he, he was the better player. He had a, an ACL injury, I think, in 09 or 08 um, mm-hmm. that sort of kind of derailed his career a little bit. But the thing that Robinson was really good at was he was a sort of a matchup press man corner. And that's how Houston used him. And when they would play teams like the Colts back in their days when they had Reggie Wayne at the height of his powers, you know, they would ask him to shadow Reggie Wayne all over the field, get up in his face. And, and Robinson was very effective doing that. He was a physical guy. Uh, I, I know a lot of people that can remember all the times that Dante Robinson knocked out other players as well as himself, <laughs> um, you know, uh, lowering the boom and lowering his head. Uh, you know, he, he's part of the reason why there are certain rules now in, in the NFL about, you know, lowering the helmet and whatnot. I, I think he, he had a hand in ushering in uh, this current era of football. But, you know, he was a physical guy. And, you know, I think at the time it made a ton of sense to get this guy because he was the top corner in that draft in that offseason, you know, big time money could be the sort of, you know, cornerback one number one guy that the Falcons were desperately looking for to fill in the shoes of guys like D'Angelo Hall who did not work out that the Falcons traded in no way. Chris Houston, their second round pick that they took in 07 that obviously did not work out because the Falcons dealt him. And so this was a move designed to stop the bleeding. And I think at the time it made a, a ton of sense. I just think once we got on the field and the Falcons basically did none of the things that Dante Robinson did well with the Texans, you know, talking about that shadow man, press man corner. So what do the Falcons do? They play off zone and they just park him on one <laughs> side of the field. And so you understandably, you know, as I've made fun of Dante Robinson many times, he was not particularly great here in Atlanta, but the Falcons really didn't do him any favors by, you know, playing to his weaknesses, I think, to a certain extent with their defensive scheme. Uh, fortunately, as you mentioned earlier, you know, guys like Brent Grimes blossomed in that d- defensive scheme starting in that 2010 season, especially. Um, but uh, it, it did not wind up working out for Dante Robinson. But at the time, I, I think there was all the reasons to believe that the Falcons had gotten their, the number one corner that they had been looking for. I mean, you know, we, we talk about today, you know, finding that John Abraham replacement. We've been looking for that guy for the better part of a decade. But at that time, it was like, when do we get the guy that replaces Deion Sanders? 
um, right. for Falcon fans at that point in time. And I think a lot of people thought Dante Robinson would be that guy. Yeah. Uh, and I think to your point, and this maybe was a, a bit of a theme uh, for Dimitrov and Mike Smith and their time together, where they would bring a player in and you wouldn't see them get used in the way that they were, uh, you know, maybe identified to be successful at. Uh, and I think Robinson was really one of the first glaring examples of that, where to your point, he was just, in some ways, it was used in the opposite fashion of, of what he did so well in Houston. And I think it was incredibly frustrating, not just for him and not just for, uh, you know, the Falcons uh, players, but for people who are watching the team and saying, why is this guy who we just paid a big money contract to not living up to the, that six-year deal? Uh, and I, I, this is where I think for a GM, those big deals, the big money deals, the the six-year deals like this, they have sort of downstream consequences. And if we you know just peek forward a little bit, obviously going into 2012, um, and it, there were other factors at play here, but when Brent Grimes came up for another deal again, um, they were looking at Dante Robinson and, and you know, you've got this big contract on the books. You've, uh, I believe they paid Matt Ryan at that point. So I think he, at that point, his big contract had hit the books as well. And now you have to start making decisions about uh, how much money you want to invest at key positions on the roster. Do you want to pay two corners like they are your number one corner? Uh, and Honestly, in the NFL, it, it is incredibly hard to pay every single player like they're the number one player at that position. You have to make decisions. And I feel like these types of deals that, uh, you know, and, and it's not exclusive to Dimitrov. He is certainly not the only GM that has done this. But this may be one of the first sort of missteps where there was a little bit of a downstream consequence for those dollars going out and being tied up into those guys. Do you feel like that's a fair assessment? Do you feel like this is maybe one of the first ones where we we're beginning to see uh, cap ramifications or uh, make it harder to keep guys that uh, maybe they developed internally? Yeah, no, I think that you you summarize it perfectly. It, it did feel like the Falcons ultimately were unwilling to commit to Brent Grimes long term um, because they had already paid Dante Robinson and they were on the verge of paying uh, Matt Ryan. I think they wound up. You're right. I think they wound up paying him his big money later in the summer of 2012. Um, so it was one of those things where it felt like, you know, this was, yeah, I think, you know, I don't have anything else to add. This was kind of the first misstep for the Dimitrov era, particularly in free agency. Um, and it, it kind of cost them a little bit. Uh, fortunately, they were sort of able to, you know, fix it, I guess you could say with the selections of, uh, Desmond Trufant and Robert Alford, so it didn't necessarily have the super long term consequences. But there, there was a, there was a couple of years there where I think the Falcons were were firmly committed to Dante Robinson. His play on the field didn't necessarily live up to that, and they wound up losing out on a really good cornerback in Brent Grimes. If for those people that don't remember, but like Brent Grimes was named to Pro Football Focus's All Decade Team as a cornerback. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know he had two really good years in 2010 and 2011 in Atlanta. You know, got hurt in 2012, then went to Miami or, or Tampa Bay. I can't remember which one first, but was really good for those teams for the next, you know, four or five years um, and, and was one of the better cornerbacks in the NFL. And the Falcons 
could have had, you know, one of the elite secondaries in the NFL had they been able to keep him and him continue to play at that level here in Atlanta. And I don't see any reason why he wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, and so it's just one of those things where you can say that the domino effect, the ripple effect of paying Dante Robinson kind of prevented the Falcons from really, you know, taking full advantage of, of having a, a really young player like Brent Grimes that could have been, you know, could have been that sort of new Deion Sanders type of player. And we would look back and say like, man, Brent Grimes, one of the best players that has put on a Falcon uniform, at least in the last 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, thanks Dante. Appreciate it. Or <laughs> th- it's not Dante's fault. He took the check. I would have taken the check too. So take uh, the thanks, check. Uh, take thanks. Uh, you know, Dimitrov, you know, Dante secured a bag as they say. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I will never blame a player for taking that big paycheck. Uh, hand it over. I'll, I'll cash it in 100 times out of 100, uh, bar none. Uh, so obviously that covers free agency, the big signing, uh, and the trend I think that would continue with Dimitrov over the years, which is to, to really try to anchor each offseason with one big free agent signing. And I think this was one of the first ones that uh, started this trend. Uh, so the next part of what Dimitrov did, obviously, was the draft class. We're going to talk about the 2010 draft class, the one that's missing that second round pick uh, that we gave away for Tony Gonzalez. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay. Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight, we'll break down... We break down who will be cutting... Cut! What are you two doing? Sorry, Chip. Prez here got his feathers ruffled when I told him Ruffles has zero chance of winning the title. And I was letting Dip know that she is not taking into account Ruffles' iconic ridges. Guys, it's March. We have to start talking about the tournament. We are. It is the 2023 Frito-Lay Snack-It. We're talking about big-time matchups between Cheetos, Smart Food, Lay's, Sun Chips, and more. Just head to the Frito-Lay Snack Bracket and vote for your favorite chip, pretzel, or dip for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. This sounds great. Keep up the good work. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4-3-2023. Void wherever hit Here's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. We're back on the Falcoholic Podcast. This is David Walker. I'm joined by Aaron Freeman of the Locked On Falcons Podcast, and we are recapping the 2010 season under Thomas Dimitrov and the moves he made uh, in his time as GM with the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, we've covered free agents. We've talked about uh, Dante Robinson and and the big deal that may have cost the team uh, some homegrown talent over the long run. Now I want to get into the draft class. Um, looking at this draft class, Aaron, one of the things that sort of struck me is in the first couple of rounds, you see quite a few really good names, guys who lasted in this league a long time. So before we get into the specifics of what uh, the Falcons did in this dra- draft class. I mean, uh, who are some of the names that jump out to you from 2010? I, I, if I'm looking at the first round, uh, one of the first names I'm seeing, you know, Ndamukong Sue, Gerald McCoy, um, Earl Thomas in the middle of that first round. Uh, just, you know, Brian Belaga tackled a little bit later. Um, any other names that you could think of in this 2010 draft class that you're like looking back and like, man, that, 
they that was a really good class in total. Tim Tebow? No, kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it, oh, I love it. Yeah, like this draft class was was a, a pretty strong one. You had some some stars come out. You had some big whiffs as well. But you know, you got players. You mentioned some of them. Um, in round one, you had Trent Williams, really good left tackle for the Redskins. You had Russell Okung taken pretty high in the draft, went on, you know, not have the success that guys like Williams and Balaga had in the NFL, but went on to be a pretty successful offensive tackle. Devin McCourty drafted as a corner, switched to um, safety and, and very good there. Um, you know, Joe Hayden, really good cornerback. Um, you, you know, you you're, you got JPP. You got Brandon Graham, you got um, Derek Morgan. I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about the draft. But, you know, this was like the first time I felt like where Falcon fans were really chomping at the bit for a pass rusher in round one. Uh, You know, I think a lot of Falcon, I remember the debate being around, should we take the local guy, Derek Morgan from Georgia Tech? Should we take Brandon Graham from uh, Michigan? Uh, Ultimately, the Falcons didn't get those guys. But you, you saw a good draft class. You saw some later round picics that really turned into really good players. Sean Lee, uh, Carlos Dunlap. Linville Joseph, Gronk. Uh, this was a, a super deep tight end class. Um, on that note, you had Gronk, you had Jimmy Graham, you had Aaron Hernandez. I know his his legacy is is beyond the football field, but he was a very good player uh, when he was in the league. Um, Jermaine Gresham, Tony Milwaukee, as as my good friend uh, <laughs> Alan Stewart would say, Navarro Bowman, not a tight end, but just another player that stood out to me uh, in this uh, Geno draft. Geno Atkins in the fourth round. Completely yes. forgot about that. Yes. Um, we'll talk about Geno Atkins when we get to Corey Peters. Uh, yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this was wound up being a, a pretty solid draft class. Teams were able to get some really good players. Eric Berry at the top, you know, the trend. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when we get to the Falcons draft class, we'll talk a lot about injuries impacting a, a lot of guys in the Falcons draft class specifically, but it does feel like some of these guys, uh, particularly early in the draft, many of these guys like the Eric Berries of the world, the Brian Balagas of the world, um, seem to have their career somewhat derailed a little bit by injuries. Navarro Bowman w- was an elite linebacker and then had that gruesome uh, knee injury in the, in the NFC Championship game, I think in 2013, 2014. Um, and that kind of derailed his NFL career. Obviously, Gronk has been on and off uh, injured lists over the years. Um, so it's one of those things where I felt like this was a really good draft class. Um and teams were able to get some really good talented players. Uh, Cam Chancellor, I'm, I'm looking at a list. So like my yeah. eyes are scanning down the list and I keep seeing more <laughs> and more people like, oh, Cam Chancellor was a fifth round pick in this draft class. Uh, so just another name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Emmanuel Sanders, third round. I mean, yeah, like you said. And I guess that when I was looking at this draft class, that was one of the things that struck me, too, is uh, most draft classes, as you would expect, tend to be talent heavy at the top. Uh, but this one, you, you saw a lot of really, really good players coming out of the mid rounds. Uh, whereas, you know, that's usually no man's land in, in those draft classes. And, uh, we saw quite a few guys come out that, uh, Oh God, Antonio Brown in the sixth round. Wow. I wasn't, I didn't want to mention him cause I know we're not allowed to talk about Antonio Brown on Falcon podcast. <laughs> I have no such ban on the, uh, the Falcon podcast, my friend. Um, but let's get into the Falcons draft class. So with the 19th, Pick in the first round, the Atlanta Falcons selected linebacker Sean Weatherspoon out of Missouri. Um, obviously, if we look back, you can't help but realize that the potential for Spoon was there. He was certainly a fan favorite. Fans loved to cheer for this guy. 
but ultimately it was the injuries that really just just set him back in his career. Uh, and he had a, a really strong 2011-2012 uh, season, but that sort of ended up being the the summary of his career before the injuries really just sidelined him. But I want to, again, go back into the context of that season, of what the Falcons needed to look for. Uh, and considering that draft class you and I were just talking about, um, and again, that first round just loaded with talent, Number one, do you feel like the pick made sense at the time for the talent and for the needs on the team? And number two, was there a player that you personally think you were pounding the table for that they should have gone for instead of Weatherspoon? And I know that's a little bit unfair because, again, we are looking back uh, you know, with 2020 vision at how everything has turned out. Um, but again, do you pick at the time and player maybe that you think would have made more sense for the team? I felt like Weatherspoon was kind of the right pick. As I said earlier, it felt like if your your priority going into this draft was getting a pass rusher, you know, Abraham was coming off a down year. You saw some promise from Corey Bierman, but, um, you know, adding to that pass rush made a, a ton of sense. But Brandon Graham went off the board at pick 13. JPP went off the board at 15. Derek Morgan went off at 16. And with the Falcons sitting there at 19, at that point in time in the draft, it felt like getting an athletic linebacker because you did pick up Mike Peterson the previous offseason. But at that point in time, Mike Peterson was just basically like a, a leader and a toughness guy. But he's not he wasn't really a playmaker at, at that point in his career and, and certainly was a liability in coverage. Curtis Lofton, I think, might have had like the first of his knee issues in 09. And so like his coverage ability wasn't great prior to that, but it only got worse from that point in time. So getting an athlete like a Sean Weatherspoon that could fly around the field and, and, and play that sort of sideline to sideline speed and, and, and bring that value in coverage, I think was necessary. I mean, at the time, like I'm looking back at like the guys that were taken in the first round after Spoon and like the only player that I remember really having a high affinity for is like, oh, I hope the Falcons draft this guy was Kyle Wilson, who the Jets took like late in round one and to be a nickel corner. And I think he wound up moving the safety or something like that. But like, that's about it. I think once those pass rushers went off the board, Spoon was kind of like the, the best player available and it made a ton of sense uh, to take him in round one. Yeah, I've seen some people argue, uh, and I don't necessarily buy into this really strongly. Uh, I've seen see some people argue in hindsight, the Falcons maybe should have considered, you know, Demarius Thomas, Des Bryant uh, to play next to Roddy White. And obviously uh, the following season, they would certainly do something about the wide receiver situation. Um but at the time, I don't feel like the Falcons considered that a pressing need. They were still primarily focused on, um, you know, a passing game that was complemented, that was more complementary to what they were doing with Michael Turner on the ground. You know, Mike Smith was still about the ground and pound, uh, and and about you know really time of possession control through the the running game. So I don't know that a receiver in that part of the uh, the Falcons era would have made a ton of sense. Uh, and honestly, I think it probably took the 2010 playoff loss to make them feel like they needed to do more in the passing game, which Dimitrov actually spoke to specifically. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I, I felt like the guys that they should have or could have taken went before Spoon. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Mike Peterson, good guy, good leader, not necessarily an elite athletic talent. Sean Weatherspoon really did have that profile that looked like he was going to be able to be just a fantastic linebacker for you know 10 years, barring the injuries. 
Um, all right. So we already mentioned that the Falcons uh, traded away their second round pick and secured Tony Gonzalez, uh, which Aaron, I'll just ask you, do you feel like in hindsight, good, good trade for the Falcons? Do you feel like that second round pick is, was too, too much for a, an aging tight end at the time? Well, I, if, if I don't know if I was quite on Twitter at the time, um, if I was, I was very fresh to it. Um, so I'm, I'm sure if if the Twitter archives, you probably see some tweets being like, "Why are we giving up this value for uh, an old tight end or whatever?" But I, like, I remember specifically being like, "They're gonna, you know, the rumors broke that the Falcons were looking at Tony Gonzalez," and I was like, "That trade doesn't make sense. He's old, and we need to build young." And blah blah blah. Um, and then like the minute the rumors became true, I'm like, I like this trade, you know, just the classic <laughs> fan of like, I'm skeptical. And then when it's like, oh, this is really going to happen. Like, I like it, you know, like, th- so, um, I'm just saying like, if anybody finds some receipts on me being down on the Tony Gonzalez <laughs> trade, that that's why. Um, so like, yeah, it made perfect sense. And it, I think the addition of Tony Gonzalez is, goes back to the point you made earlier where I don't feel like the Falcons really felt compelled to need to add that dynamic playmaker in the passing game. Obviously that would get exposed as you mentioned later in 2010 in, in the playoff game against the green Bay. But yeah, like at the time, like, you know, Thomas and Bryant, those guys were talented players, but I, I don't feel like, you know, they were the missing piece for the Falcons. And again, they had so many holes on the defense that they kind of needed to go best player available. So, um, you know, sorry, rehashing the first round pick, but no, absolutely. Um, second round. Yeah. I think, it wound up making a ton of sense, giving up that value. I know, you know, at that time we didn't know that Tony Gonzalez would wind up playing, you know, another, what, four years in Atlanta, but it it seemed like to get that sort of, that complimentary piece opposite Roddy White, that Michael Jenkins really wasn't at that point. I mean, Jenkins flashed some things in 08, but then kind of reverted back to the old sort of inconsistent Michael Jenkins in 09. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, having that one-two punch along with uh, Michael Turner, yeah, the, the Gonzalo's trade worked out. And guess what? We got the guy that the Chiefs wound up taking with that pick later on in Javier Arenas. So, uh, you know, it all worked out in the end. The great Javier Arenas. Oh, man. Uh, just for reference, some of the players that came out of that second round um, that were of note, uh, tackles slash guard, uh, Roger, Roger Soffold, who uh, had a good career in this league, um, obviously the big name would have to be Rob Gronkowski, uh, who went at 42, uh, Linval Joseph, uh, who I think is, you know, a, a really good defensive tackle, uh, Carlos Dunlap, Sean Lee, uh, came out in the second round of this draft class, Golden Tate. Um, so, you know, again, some quality players, guys that, you know, spent quite a few years in, in, in the league, Zane, Zane Beatles <laughs> came out in this second round. Uh, so the Falcons, you know, bypassed a lot of those guys. And again, you know, I, I want to point out, because I've heard a lot of people say this, oh, if they hadn't traded away that second round pick, they could have gotten Rob Gronkowski. Again, that's the benefit of hindsight. And I don't think that's, you know, fair. I'm, I'm not sure that anyone thought Rob Gronkowski was going to be the most dominant uh, receiving tight end that ever played in the NFL. Certainly he had potential, but, uh, you know, there were obviously concerns there as well, or he wouldn't have lasted into the second round like he did. Uh, so let's fast forward into the third round uh, because we actually have two picks to talk about with the Falcons here. Um, at With the 83rd pick, the, the Falcons took Corey Peters, defensive tackle out of Kentucky. And as you mentioned, um, as we were talking about the draft class as a whole, there was this uh, guy in the fourth round 
who went by the name of Geno Atkins, uh, who had a phenomenal career. Oh, by the way, he played at the University of Georgia. And I'm sure that none of the Falcons fans were bitter about that. Um, and then the 98th pick in the third round was Mike Johnson, uh, offensive guard out of Alabama. So let's start with Corey Peters, um, because I feel like this is a player that for the round he was taken in, I, I felt like he his productivity in the league was uh, decent. He was, you know, again, yet another player that I think struggled with injuries throughout his career. But when he was healthy, he played well. Uh, and I would note that he actually uh, supplanted Pariah Jerry at one point as starter on the defensive line, uh, the first round pick from 2009. Um, so what are your thoughts on Corey Peters, his time in Atlanta and the value of that pick at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, this was a good D-tackle class. So you, know, you had the Sue and McCoy at the top of the draft, but you had several other guys, as you mentioned, Linville Joseph, among others, that went early. And it kind of came to the point where it was basically like Corey Peters and Geno Atkins on the board. And Peters was kind of the safe guy compared to Atkins. Atkins had the upside, but people don't recall, like Atkins had some issues going on at Georgia where there were questions about his work ethic and his character, because I think mm. he got benched that final year at Georgia. And everybody was like, why is the most talented player in this Georgia defense on the, riding the bench and not getting snaps? And there was related to some of the coaching uh, issues and, and whatever, you know, obviously Atkins went on to be very successful. That was kind of an MO of the Bengals at the time, which was taking some quote unquote characteristic guys and Marvin Lewis being able to coach those guys up to a lot of success. I remember mm -hmm. being upset that the Falcons didn't take a flyer on Geno Atkins at the time, but you know, Peters was a safe guy, high motor, high character guy, productive pass rusher in the SEC at Kentucky, went on to be a very successful run defender in the NFL, never quite lived up to the the expectations as, as a major contributor to pass rusher, but you saw flashes. I remember early in Peter's career, you mentioned Parade Jerry, like Jerry had that sort of career-threatening knee injury uh, his rookie year, and so the Falcons need mm -hmm. another D-tackle. I remember liking a lot of what Vance Walker did in those early years and thinking he outplayed Corey Peters, but Peters yeah. had the pedigree, um, and that, that again, that became a, a MO of the Smitty era of sort of the higher round draft picks getting uh, more of the benefit of the doubt um, than sort of the later round guys, even if the later round guys outperformed some of those guys. Um, but, you know, Peters, I think you, you, you nailed it. Like, he kind of started off a little slow, a little up and down. I remember fighting everybody on Twitter at the time, trying to sit there and say that he was better than Jonathan Babineau. You know that, you know, that's the hottest take you can ever say to uh, me. But I think in 2013, he really had a, he, he kind of put it all together and really started to look like a, a really good player. Didn't have the Achilles injury. And then yeah. that led to the, you know, I know this is not a 2014 one, but it got to throw Tyson Jackson and, and Paul Solia under the bus on every podcast. hundred oh, percent. Yeah. And so the Falcons <laughs> went out and paid those guys instead of paying Corey Peters. And it was kind of an F you to Corey Peters. And then he went on, played really well in 2014, outplaying both of those guys, went on to Arizona, very successful, still going strong in Arizona. Uh, you know, maybe I think he's a free agent after this year. Maybe he retires or, or something like that, but put together a, a decade long career in the NFL uh, as a solid yeah. player. And it, it goes back to, you know, one of the, popular criticisms of the Mike Smith era was like, oh, they didn't develop talent. It was like they developed talent plenty. They just kept reaching on late round guys in, in early round picks. And those guys would wind up performing like late round guys. But I think Corey Peters is one of those few players that the Falcons kind of took in round three. There's not a lot of great ones that they took in that era um, that really did live up 
to his his draft billing, even though we kind of look back and say, man, imagine if they had drafted Geno Atkins instead. But I think Corey yeah. Peters wound up being a pretty solid player for the Falcons. Yeah. And again, you know, hindsight being what it is, obviously, you know, people point to Geno Atkins now as well, but he lasted to the fourth round, which means every NFL team passed on him three times at minimum. Uh, so it's not like the Falcons were the only team that passed on Geno Atkins. Even his own team passed on him uh, for three rounds. So uh, Mike Johnson, this is, I was thinking back about this guy and I think the story with him was always, he's about to, he's about to, it always felt like, okay, this is the year. And this was another guy, this you mentioned it earlier, where the the story about injuries really sort of took over his career. It always felt like he was going to be one of those guys that would finally step up, finally step up, um, and it just never materialized. I mean, ultimately, I think Garrett Reynolds beat him out, uh, and that's a really low, terrible bar for someone to beat you out. Of, you know, when it's Garrett Reynolds for the right guard spot that was you know vacated by Harvey Dahl when they let him walk after the season. Um, what's your take on, on Mike Johnson? Did the pick make sense to you? And, and do you feel like his career was just mainly a disappointment? I love this pick at the time. I thought this was like the best pick after the, the spoon pick at the time, because Johnson was a very good player at Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, played on some of those really good Bama offensive lines where they were just pounding the ball down people's throats with like Mark Ingram and those guys and Andre Smith. Um, and I thought he was going to be a stud. The Falcons drafted him clearly with an eye on the future. They had both Harvey Dahl and Justin Blaylock about to enter the final years of their contracts in 2010. And it was the idea of one of those guys is going to stay. And then Mike Johnson will step in and and fill the shoes of the other guy that ultimately was Blaylock that stayed and and Dahl walked. And you're right. Like he lost competitions to Garrett Reynolds, but a lot of that was tied to injuries. Like he got hurt in that summer in, in 2011 that led that, you know, I think he missed like two weeks and that gave Reynolds the ability to sort of take the lead in competition. Um, Then the following year, the Falcons drafted Peter Kahn's, and we're more looking towards like, okay, if we're going to have someone push Garrett Reynolds for that right guard spot, you know, we have the second round picking Peter Collins. We want it to be him. And so Johnson kind of just sort of was this, you know, twiddling his thumbs, got some playing time at right tackle behind, um, I think, Lamar Holmes and Tyson Claybo at the time. And that kind of paid off for him because you thought going in that 2013 season, okay, he was competing with Lamar Holmes for that right tackle spot and was in ahead in the competition. But then again, got derailed by injuries and Holmes injuries. wound up taking that job. They brought him back in, in 2014. Um, and uh, once again, once Sam Baker got hurt that summer and they moved Jake Matthews uh, to left tackle, they had a vacancy at right tackle. And it was like, OK, it's Mike Johnson. This is your last shot. And then he got hurt again. So yeah. I think, you know, Johnson was you you nailed it. Like it was a player that I think was a good player. I recall him doing some nice things in the rare opportunities we got to see him in the preseason and look like he was a promising player that could have been a, a, a capable starter at either the guard or tackle position. But it was just like, he had some bad luck with injuries and, you know, there were three years there where he had an opportunity to start for this Falcon team on the offensive line. And who knows if he had gotten that start, maybe, you know, the Falcons would have been able to solidify their offensive line several years before the, the John Asamoas and the Chris Chesters and the Andy Levitris and, and the West Schweitzers and the, Chris Lindstrom's or whatever, but he just couldn't stay healthy and it, it never wound up working out. And and so you had a pretty talented player that I recall a lot of people really liking uh, coming into the league and just never worked out for him. 
Yeah. And it's unfortunate because uh, I was with you. I, I, I was very much looking forward to seeing him on the field and it just, it just never actually happened. Um, all right. Fourth round, the Atlanta Falcons, 117th pick took Joe Hawley center from Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, to me, this move made sense as well. Todd McClure was well over 30 by the time they made this pick. We knew eventually we would have to, um, you know, replace him in the middle of that offensive line. Obviously, you know, Peter Kahn's, uh comes into the conversation in future years. Uh, and Holly was someone that uh, ultimately, I think, delivered for his uh, draft value, fourth round pick. You don't always expect to get a starter. Um, he was a decent starter. I, I feel like sometimes fans maybe overhype how good he was because he was, uh, he was very scrappy. Uh, he liked to fight with guys uh, and he liked to jaw off. And I think that gets fans on your side and it makes them look over some of your issues as a player a little bit. Um, Holly was a decent player for the Falcons. I, I don't think he was ever going to be a pro bowl caliber player. Um, I think, you know, his career probably hovered between mediocre and in average, um, but again, for a fourth round pick, a guy that, you know, is probably going to be a developmental guy, uh, not bad value there. So what's your take on Joe Hawley and that, that fourth round usage on him? Yeah. At the time it was a pick that I think a lot of people sort of saw as a reach. Cause I think a lot of people had him projected pre-draft, like going in round six or round seven, but you're right. right. They, they needed a developmental and heir apparent to Todd McClure. I think at that point in time, McClure was signed through the 2011 season, wound up sticking around through 2010. So it was an eye towards the future. As I said, uh, an indicator of the sort of the mentality that the Falcons had in this offseason of building towards the future. They were still trying to build long-term with the picks like Johnson and, and Hawley, not with an eye of those guys contributing right away, but you know, further down the line being solid starters. I, you know, I think Hawley you know, I'm I'm one of those people that loves Holly probably a little bit more than his performance deserves. Largely, I think in large part due to the fact that after the sort of bust that was Peter Kahn's, he came in in 2013 and played relatively really well for the Falcons at the center and stabilized that position. But then yeah. dealt with some injuries in 2014 and 2015 that led to him losing his job to uh, James Stone, the incomparable James Stone and, and Mike Person <laughs> in those years. Um, and, you know, went on to be decent in Tampa Bay, but, you know, wasn't anything great. He was he was a solid starter, but nothing to write home about. And I think really he his value was stabilizing a really uh, unstable situation that the Falcons had at center for for several years after Todd McClure. Um, the the one thing, as you say, is scrappy. Uh, I remember Justin Tuck saying that the Falcons offensive line was full of dirt bags going into that 2011 playoff game. <laughs> yeah. And I know he was 100% talking about Joe Hawley. Joe Hawley, as, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, for those of you guys that have learned to love Alex Max flops uh, after the whistle, um, you know, we're recording this right after the uh, – uh, Carolina game on Thursday night, and there was a couple flops from Alex Mack that almost drew some flags uh, in that game. Joe Hawley was the greatest flopper I have he ever was. seen in the history of the world. Like he would, <laughs> he would play beyond the whistle. He'd be pushing guys around, and then when the defensive player retaliated, he would just you know flop so hard. You, like think of what Robert Alford did with Aaron Rodgers. Multiply that by a hundred. And that would be a Joe Hawley flop. And I absolutely loved him for it. He was the king of the dirtbags. <laughs> he was. Uh, and and again, like I said, I think that was why a lot of fans really fell in love with him. He was, um, I, I think it's good when you have a player like that 
who inspires the other team to hate you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Fifth round. Falcons with their 135th pick took Dominique Franks. Man, this name brings back some memories. Uh, Defensive back out of Oklahoma. The first thing I thought about Aaron when I heard his name when I was reviewing this was Fair Catch Franks, um, which I think is what uh, a moniker that stuck with him when he was our punt returner, kick returner for a while. What's your take on on Dominique and his time and, and his draft value at the time? Yeah, I remember liking this pick. Uh, this was back at a time before the world realized that Big 12 corners were bad. Um, so we were still stuck in this mindset of like, oh, the Oklahoma pedigree, that's a good guy. He's going to be good. No, Frank's, you know, never really did much here in Atlanta. Um, he was kind of stuck behind Grimes and Robinson um, and Owens as well. Um, his, his sort of best opportunity on defense came at the end of the 2011 season when Grimes got hurt and he sort of stepped into the role as the sort of number three corner there uh, was okay. As I recall, you mentioned the sort of fair catch Frank's thing. He was the punt returner in 2012, uh, very unproductive uh, that year. Um, you know, just kind of rode the bench in Atlanta, never really turned into much, you know, to me, the other thing that is most memorable to me about his career was he left Atlanta, went to Baltimore in 2014. And I remember a game against the Ravens where he kind of locked up Roddy white in that game. And it was like, Oh no, Roddy white might be done uh, because <laughs> Dominic Franks was able to keep him check. I know Roddy was dealing with a, a major knee injury that year. And that's contributed to why uh, that happened. But it was like that basically the fair catches, and, and that one game, not in a Falcons uniform, are really the two most memorable things that he he contributed in my eyes uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, and it, it's hard to quibble over you know fifth, sixth round, seventh round guys. Uh, really, I think at that point you're looking at guys who can cut their teeth on special teams uh, and maybe eventually work their way into a rotational role. Uh, you know, every now and then you'll find a starter, uh, but fifth and sixth round the hit rate is is pretty low across the league. Um, as for guys who went around him, you know, this may not be fair, but, uh, you've got, you know, Marshall Newhouse, who was a good you know, guard for a while, uh, at the back of the fifth round. Um, but for the most part, you know, as you would expect in most draft classes, not a ton of big names, not a guys that were, you know, really super productive, maybe, uh, Rashad Jones, who, uh, was taken by Miami later in the fifth round. Again, I, I I'm not going to spend a ton of time, you know, dissecting fifth round picks. Uh, On that note though, with the 165th pick, the Falcons took Kerry Meyer, a wide receiver out of Kansas. I think at the time there was thoughts that this guy could maybe develop into, you know, a decent fourth or fifth option in the passing game. He was a former quarterback, uh, quote unquote that. So, you know, automatically if he's a former white quarterback who now plays wide receiver, that makes him a smart, a smart player. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but he he sort of just turned into a guy who you know made his impact on special teams and it was marginal at that. Um, any concerns? Any anything you want to say about Kerry Meyer? Or you want to just move on? <laughs> oh, I have a lot to say about Kerry Meyer. Oh, hit uh, me, hit me. Um, I remember hating this pick. Um, largely, like Kerry Meyer was fine. He was a fine college player. You know, in that system, it was basically converted as a converted quarterback you know it was run five yards down the field turn around catch the ball and then you know turn that five yard catch into a 10 yard gain or 15 yard gain and he was very productive had a lot of catches that year uh basically doing you know all the things all the negative things that people accuse the patriots of doing with guys like wes welker and julian edelman and speaking of edelman edelman was a college cornerback 
uh, quarterback, I'm sorry, that converted to a wide receiver uh, that had an immaculate three cone the previous draft. And I think the Falcons had these this eye on Kerry Meyer being the new Julian Edelman because Kerry Meyer had an absolutely stellar three cone at his pro day. There you Other go. than that, he was not a particularly athletic guy. Um, and so I think the Falcons at that time, this is when we're talking about Dimitrov. This was yep. before the Dan Quinn era with the broad jump and the 40 time became sort of the thing that the Falcons keyed on with their draft picks. But a, a great three cone, you know, that would catch Dimitrov's eyes as it often did from all those Patriot guys and the Scott Pioli's of the world because they loved themselves a three cone and urgent athleticism. And so I think the Falcons <laughs> had this idea that, you know, Julian Edelman, I mean, sorry, Kerry Meyer would be this new Julian Edelman type and they could develop him. But he was a player that was, you know, too slow for a wide receiver, too small to be a tight end, a tweener type. Those guys don't have a, a, a ton of success uh, projecting into the NFL. Even when you find a guy that winds up being successful, like a Darren Waller from Georgia Tech with the Raiders, it took Darren Waller five years to to, to really hit it. And so drafting those guys doesn't really you know, move the needle at that point in time. And I, I remember thinking that at the time, like, why are you, this is a undrafted free agent project. That's going to take three or four years for you to develop. Uh, Why are you drafting him in round five when there are better players out there like an Antonio Brown, who I wasn't even like absolutely in, obviously no one saw Antonio Brown becoming Antonio Brown, but at the time you were like, he can return. He can play the slot. He's actually good. Uh, why not draft a, a, someone like him instead of this project in, in Kerry Meyer? I think the Falcons, Again, in addition to the Edelman stuff, I think they wanted him to be sort of the new Brian Finneran, as I mentioned at the top. You know, Finneran at that point in time of his career was a kind of a jack of all trades, special teams ace. Yep. Um, and I think they, you know, the Falcons had this habit under Dimitrov of if their top three receivers play offense, but everybody else that plays wide receiver for the team is purely a special teams guy. And they had yeah. Jenkins and Roddy and Douglas at the time. And after that point, it was just like, just play special teams. You know, we saw that continue with guys like Kevin Cohn and Drew Davis and James Rogers and, you know, <laughs> all the way up to even Russell Gage. Fortunately, Russell Gage has actually turned into a halfway decent offensive player uh, from just being a special teams guy. So I didn't love the pick at the time. Obviously, Meyer, again, like some of these other guys, his career kind of got derailed by an injury. Who knows? Maybe he would have exceeded my expectations, had an ACL tear his first uh, summer in the league and then, you know, showed great hands, but just simply couldn't separate from coverage, um, as you would expect from a tweener that has a major knee injury at that point in time. So, um, yeah. Ten more minutes on Kerry Meyer than I you probably thought going into the DW, but I had a lot of things, you know, brewing that I need to get off my chest about Kerry Meyer and that draft pick over the last ten years. Well, and, but that's why we're here uh, is to look at what Dimitrov did and and to examine it within the light of guys who were available, uh, whether the picks made sense. I think you're I think you're right. I think and, and honestly, this was this began to be the story for. Dimitrov, at least in his time with uh, Mike Smith. I think that did change more into the Dan Quinn era, uh, which obviously in, on this podcast series we'll get into. But it seemed like once you got past the third or fourth round, they started really focusing more on these guys who were not only going to be, who were primarily going to be contributors on special teams and maybe eventually work their way up to you know being part of the rotation. Uh, and Meyer sort of fit the mold for that. And obviously he did not work out long-term uh, clearly with the Falcons. Uh, last pick of this draft class was in the sixth round. Uh, the 171st pick was Shan Schillinger, safety out of Montana. Not a guy that really did much at all uh, with the Falcons. Uh, and of course, 
in the light of the fact that, uh, you know, guys like Antonio Brown did go in the sixth round. Uh, obviously, like you said, no one knew that Antonio Brown was going to become what he uh, ultimately did. Um, but Schellinger just felt like, again, another pick that, uh, you know, they, they were aiming at special teams, maybe some long-term developmental potential, but it just didn't work out. Yeah, I, I don't have as much to say about Schellinger as I do Kerry Meyer. So uh, I think this was the pick that they got from the Chris Houston trade. Um, yep. Decent athlete in Shan Schillinger. Again, you're right. I think they were honing in on him being a special teams guy, maybe a decent backup. I know at that time, Eric Coleman was their third safety. And so I think they kind of envisioned Schillinger maybe developing into that role long term, but primarily a special teams guy. Like his biggest claim to fame or really infamy was he got <laughs> cut for giving up a block punt. I can't remember what season it was, 2012, 2013, one of those years. Um, and sort of that ended his NFL career. He he, he got beat, I think it was in the Saints game um, by somebody. And, and you know, there's, it always seems like a, a Saints game where someone gives up a block <laughs> punt. But, um, you know, I might be just confusing the other 18 times that it's happened for the Falcons over the last 15 years. But uh, yeah, no just, that, that's basically it. I, I thought he was a decent special teams player, solid special teams player, and, and provided that role. But, you know, ultimately, if your role is going to be special teams, you, you can't give up block punts. Uh, that's a key <laughs> part of it. So ultimately led to his release. Um, and yeah, that was a pretty lackluster six round pick. But at the, at that time, like, yeah. Unlike the Kerry Meyer pick, I don't feel like that was a bad pick at the time. You're just basically taking flyers on special teams guys. And at least, you know, Schillinger was at least a decent enough safety that you could say he could be a competent backup in the league. Um, so didn't really have a major, major problem with that one. Yep. So we've gone through the draft class. We've talked about the free agents. We've talked about Dante Robinson and that big contract. Um, third year under GM Thomas Dimitrov. Uh, I believe uh, 2008, he won the uh, executive of the year. Uh, and I believe he won it again in this year. Um, I think it was 2008, 2010, if I remember right. Anyhow, Aaron, looking back, looking at all that Thomas Dimitrov did, if you're going to give him a letter grade, what would your grade be for his 2010 season? Um, You know, I- at the time, it seemed like it was like a B, but hindsight tells you like the best you can give it. It's like a C minus. I don't know. Like the the Dante yeah. Robinson move falling flat on its face really kind of undermines it. And the fact, you know, they they you know again, who knows how much uh, it feels tough knocking him for injuries that they couldn't really control. Several of these right. guys that we've talked about didn't live up to their expectations because they got hurt. So it's hard for me to be too hard on Dimitrov because you didn't know those things at the time. The one thing I will criticize Dimitrov for in this 2010 draft class wasn't had nothing to do with the players they took in the draft, but the players they didn't take in the draft, which was this was a historic tight end class. And the Falcons Mm -hmm. knew at this time that they needed a developmental guy to replace Tony Gonzalez down the road. And they settled for, you know, the incomparable Michael Palmer as an undrafted free agent. Palmer as an undrafted free agent was a good player, but the fact that the Falcons spent three years convincing the world that Michael Palmer was going to be Tony Gonzalez's (laughs) heir apparent to me just made no sense. So, you know, I'll knock it down to a D plus because of what eventually happened with the Falcons. And we saw the tight end position that led to Levine Toilolo, that led to, you know, Jacob Tammy, eventually Austin Hooper, now Hayden Hurst. So it's been 
to me, if you ask me, if we're going to talk about ripple effects and domino effects, long-term things, the Falcons passing on the Tony Milwaukee's of the world in this 2010 draft class led to a decade of up and down tight end play uh, for them in the post uh, Tony Gonzalez world. Um, And they've never fully recovered from, you know, putting all their hopes and dreams into Michael Palmer uh, at this point in time. So Dimitrov, come on, man, like Michael Palmer, like he's fine as a third tight end, but like, he's not a starter. Like, come on. No, you got to anchor off of. (laughs) Uh, And you made such a great point earlier, and I think in the light of what you just said, the Falcons were in a mode of thinking about replacing their long-term veterans. You know, they they clearly, in some of these draft picks, um, were looking towards the future. Mike Johnson was about uh, who was going to take over for guard when one of Dahl or Blaylock left. Um, So they clearly had that in mind. And, you know, Tony Gonzalez was not a spring chicken when they traded for him, and he was a year older at this point. Um, so yes, I, I think that is a very, very valid criticism. And ultimately, I think one that uh, has been sort of the ultimate dark cloud over Dimitrov's time was we had these guys that were aging out and it took way too long to find replacements for them. Whether it was Tony Gonzalez, whether it was John Abraham, uh, you can point to several big names where under Dimitrov's watch, it took way too long and or we still haven't replaced those guys, uh, as I think many people would say is true in the case of John Abraham. Um, so very interesting. I think I'm going to go with you. I think at best C minus that feels right uh, in hindsight. Again, at the time, probably a B because the the picks made sense. Um, but when your first three picks in the draft class basically get devastated by injuries over their career, that's really, really tough to put on the GM. Um, and, and the picks I did, you know, I do think in hindsight made a ton of sense. Sean Weatherspoon, Corey Peters, Mike Johnson, uh, really solid at the time. Uh, but obviously, we get to judge him in 2020 hindsight, uh, whether or not that's fair. Uh, that's part of what we're here for. Uh, so, Aaron, thank you for joining me to recap this 2010 uh, look back at uh, Dimitrov's time with the Falcons. Why don't you tell our listeners what you have going on and where they can find you? Yeah, people can check me out on Twitter at Falcfans, F-A-L-C-F-A-N-S. Of course, uh, every day on the greatest daily (laughs) podcast devoted to the Atlanta Falcons on Locked on Falcons on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, check me out talking about what's going on in 2020. But DW, I appreciate you allowing me to go back down this memory lane, uh, looking back at Dimitrov's. You know, I had these Kerry Meyer takes ready to go. I've just been waiting <laughs> for the opportunity for the last decade to just fire off these Kerry Meyer takes. And I'm glad you finally gave me this opportunity to, uh, I, you know, put it all out there. It, it warms my, my cold, dead heart to give you the, the opportunity to go off on Kerry Meyer. I, and here I was the whole time thinking it would be on Dante Robinson, but um, my God, the, the strongest takes came from Kerry Meyer. I, I absolutely love that about you. <laughs> As for me, guys, you can find me on Twitter at FalcoholicDW. Updates on this podcast at FalcoholicPod. And of course, our articles daily at thefalcoholic.com. So for Aaron Freeman of the Locked On the Falcons podcast, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk with you next time.